compassion are the two great qualities of the Buddha. His compassion was the very great loving care he had for beings. which motivated him over so many lifetimes to make the effort to come to understanding, come to the understanding of how suffering is created, how we condition suffering in our lives, and the possibility of freedom from that suffering, possibility of coming out of it. And so it was his great compassion which fueled his efforts for so many lifetimes and culminated in his enlightenment, in his awakening. He spent the next 45 years of his life, he was enlightened at the age of 35, spent the next 45 years teaching people and urging them and admonishing them, and tricking them, and cajoling them, and exhorting them. To do that which would truly be for their happiness. And it's interesting that all of these skillful means needed to be used to somehow awaken people to the possibility that we actually can be happy in our lives. We can awaken from the dream of illusion and of ignorance. In his enlightenment, the Buddha saw what was true. And out of his compassion, he wanted others to see what was true. The 45 years of his teaching is summed up in one verse of the Dhammapada, which is a collection of the Buddha's verses. Four lines sum up the whole of the teachings. Refrain from unskillful actions. Do good ones. Purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. The very last line of this verse points to the timelessness of the Dhamma, the timelessness of the teachings. There were Buddhas before this last one, Siddhartha Gautama, that is, awakened, fully awakened beings, and there will be Buddhas in the future. And the teaching remains the same, the truth remains the same, because the truth is timeless. Refrain from unskillful actions. Perform good ones. Purify the mind. There are ten unwholesome actions which do harm to oneself and harm to others. And these are the actions that the Buddha urged us to avoid. Because they're like planting the seeds of future suffering. 
So if we can understand what these ten unwholesome actions are and refrain from planting these seeds, we're no longer creating for ourselves the conditions of future pain. There are three unwholesome actions of the body. There are four unwholesome actions of speech and three unwholesome actions of the mind. These are the ones that the Buddha urged us to avoid out of compassion, out of compassion for the well-being of all beings. The first unwholesome action of the body is to refrain from killing. And on one level, it seems so obvious, you know, just to refrain from taking life. It's interesting to see in our culture and society, in the world and in our own lives, when it is that we're, we're brought up right against this particular precept. It's very obvious here in the fall, in the autumn, during the three-month course, when hunting season starts. You know, because there are woods all around and people going off into the woods with these big hunting rifles to kill animals. And it's not an uncommon, it's not an uncommon pastime. What is actually happening in the mind that sees killing of beings as a sport? New uh, director of IMS, he had a a game plan for the town of Barry. He wanted to suggest that instead of using bullets, the hunters go out with uh, spray paint. So like all the joy of the hunting can be there. You know, you just <laughs> tag the deer with some uh, red paint. I don't know how it's going to go over <laughs> in town. <laughs> or even you know, just go around um, to ordinary houses, you know, and see people kind of swatting flies. And it seems like such a trivial action. You know, fly in the house, swat it. And we lose the sense that all of these creatures are actually living beings, just like us. And we lose that sense of oneness. And in that loss, we become more and more separated. We become more and more isolated. How much suffering would be eliminated in this world if we could follow this admonition to refrain from killing? If all people would, would follow that, just imagine the amount of pain that would be removed from the world. Even if we just stopped killing other people. You know, And so it's really something to look at on on whatever level we're working. Just to see if we can approach this with increasing sensitivity. And it's not always easy. It's not that it's always a simplistic solution. You know, there are interesting questions which come up when one is balancing values. 
Now one's house is being eaten by termites. What does one do? Well, there's a health hazard. What does one do? What's important is that we honor this value and understand that it's an action to avoid and to bring consciousness to it, to bring wakefulness rather than quality of unthinkingness. The second action of the body to avoid that's unwholesome, that's productive of suffering, (coughs) again, is quite obvious, and that's stealing. Not taking that which isn't given. And this is on so many levels. You know, how much of the resources of the world does our culture use? Huge, tremendous. You borrow a book and forget to return it. It's just a lack of consciousness. It's taking something which hasn't been offered, which hasn't been freely given. Whether we look on it on the planetary scale or just the little interactions of our relationships, can we refine our sensibility? The third unwholesome action of the body is one that needs a tremendous amount of attention. And that is refraining from sexual misconduct. And again, this means different things in different contexts. In our ordinary life, where we're undertaking to follow the, the basic five precepts you know, of, ethical, of ethical conduct, it means not getting involved in sexual relations which cause suffering, which involve us in deception, in dishonesty. I think we know. No, it's not a big mystery. If we can step outside of the thrall of our desires and just open to what we're doing in a situation of sexual intimacy. Is the whole situation for us, is it one of harmony, is it one of loving care? Or does it involve some unwholesome states of mind? And very traditionally, this refers to adultery, getting involved with somebody who's involved with somebody else. But I think it can even be more refined than that. Just the sense that we really look. When we're on retreat, there's a different meaning of sexual misconduct, and that means refraining from any kind of sexual activity for a period of time. And people who are committed as monks or nuns undertake this vow of celibacy for the entire duration of their ordination. There's something tremendously interesting to be learned from periods of restraint, from periods of abstinence. It's not merely kind of this effort of, well, okay, I'll be celibate for a week 
or ten days or whatever. What we can learn about, which can be so transforming for our lives, we learn about the nature of desire. In a situation like this, we have the opportunity to observe very directly and firsthand the impermanence of desire. Desire comes and it can be very strong and we watch it and, and it goes. And we see that we actually don't have to fulfill it or gratify it for it to disappear, for it to go. Because the very nature of desire, like everything else, it appears, it's strong, it disappears. As we see this nature of desire, not theoretically, but as we really are experiencing this in ourselves, something very important happens. We understand that we need not be driven by the force of desire in the mind. That we have the strength, we have the power, we have the spaciousness to respond appropriately. We're no longer in the state of addiction to desire. From giving us, from having given ourselves a place of abstinence from gratification, we see their impermanence and we understand that we have a choice. If it's appropriate in situations, we can act on it. If it's not appropriate or we don't choose to, we don't act on it. And still the desire comes and goes. Pay attention the next time a desire whether it's a sexual desire or really any kind of desire, pay careful attention the next time it comes in the mind. And just watch its course. Follow its course. And watch what happens in the mind when the desire disappears. Just see what it feels like when it's there and when it's gone. So these are the three unwholesome actions of the body that is killing and stealing and sexual misconduct and using sexual energy in the wrong way. There are four of speech. And this is quite interesting that the Buddha should have so singled out the power of speech as being so important because mostly in our lives we ignore it. We don't pay much attention. We don't take a lot of care with how we're using this energy. And yet, with even a little bit of reflection, we can see, first, how prevalent it is. We spend a lot of each day talking. And we can see, with a little reflection, how much power speech has. So what are the kinds of speech to avoid? What are the kinds of speech that are actually unskillful and productive of suffering? The first of them is false speech. It's lying. And we might think, well, I don't lie. I'm honest. 
We're relatively honest. (laughs) We're kind of honest. But when we really watch how we're using the speech, just see different ways. Sometimes it's just exaggeration. Exaggeration is really being dishonest. We're saying something that isn't true. Something I see myself fall into the habit of so often, and it's so hard, the conditioning is so strong, where I'll shade the truth out of a feeling of not wanting to hurt somebody. Even when it probably wouldn't hurt them anyway. But just the sense of trying to protect people's feelings. And so I'll kind of dance around the truth a little bit. It's really a misguided notion of compassion. We're doing a greater disservice to people if we're saying that which isn't true just because we think they may be hurt by it. Because what's happening in that situation, we're creating conditions for people not to trust themselves. Because they may very well feel that something is a little off, and yet we're saying the opposite. And so a whole climate of mistrust and distrust is created. It's not helpful. It's actually an unwholesome quality of mind that does that. I had a very strong hit of the capacity of the mind to shade the truth during my first retreat with Upandita where I went in for an interview and I was reporting. It was a very intense retreat. It was his first visit and he was really being fierce and everything was very tense. <laughs> it wasn't a kind of nice, relaxed. And I went in for an interview and I reported on some part of my experience and he said, that's not true. <laughs> and it was kind of like this shock to me. You know? <laughs> and when I looked more I had to look. (laughs) I saw that that my mind was shading my experience, you know, and thinking that something I had experienced the day or two before still really should be happening, and I thought that was really good. And And it was all in kind of this gray area of half-conscious and half-unconscious. In that context, it was tremendously humiliating. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> but what was really value, valuable about it for me was to acknowledge that the mind actually can do that, and does do that. And so it took it out of the shadow realm, you know, things we don't like to see about ourselves, and brought it out into light. Oh, yeah, look at that. The mind's doing this. And in the light, then we can actually make a conscious choice. If it's in the shadow, if we don't acknowledge the ways in which we shade the truth, we don't have the chance to actually purify the mind of it. So it's just opening and seeing this and seeing the danger of speaking that which isn't true. There's... a great power in truth. And in 
stories through the ages within the Buddhist tradition and probably many traditions, there's something called making a declaration of truth, saying, may such and such happen based upon a true statement that we make. And often it was used in healing. There's the story of one monk who came across a woman who was having a very difficult uh, situation in childbirth. And he made this statement of truth that since he had ordained as a monk, he had never consciously taken the life of a living being. By the power of this truth, may this childbirth happen easily. It has power and it's happened, there are many stories of this in the Buddhist time, it happens today. We shouldn't underestimate the energy of truth, truth in speech. Just one more story of this, because it's just so important that we, that we understand it deeply. This is, this is a story of something the story of truth in a very extreme situation and the commitment to it. I'm thinking of a couple of stories. <laughs> One was written by, it was a book written by a Dutch woman during uh, the Second World War. It's called A Hiding Place. And it describes how she was in the Dutch resistance and hiding a group of Jews in her house. She was a very devout Catholic. And for many months or years, you know, it was successful. But at one time, uh, the Gestapo heard about it. They, They went to her house and they demanded to know whether she was hiding anybody. And her commitment to the truth was paramount for her. And so she said yes. And this is a woman who had spent you know, all these months hiding these people. They were taken away to the camps. Every one of the people taken from her house actually survived the camps in relatively good, relatively good um, situation compared to the others. In the story, there's a great elaboration. It, it tracks these people, you know, as what happened to them in the camps. And it was almost as if the power of the truth was a protection. The story written recently by a Chinese woman who was imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution in China. And she was innocent. She was in prison for six years and tortured and they wanted her to confess to something that she hadn't done because of a political maneuvering with Chow and Lai and there's a whole political uh, situation. Under the most extreme conditions, she would not waver from her commitment to the truth. She would not admit to doing something that she didn't do even upon promise of being released. Finally, after six years, 
of prison. She was released. She was being let out. As she was being let out, they wanted her to sign some papers implying that she had actually been guilty of this crime. She said, I'm not signing. I'd rather go back in. And this is, this is amazing, amazing commitment to what is true. You know, and this book is called Life and Death in Shanghai. It's an extremely inspiring story of how the mind can so value this in the most extreme situations. Okay, avoiding what's untrue. Avoiding harsh speech, you know, angry speech. Avoiding backbiting and gossip because this causes a lot of disharmony and it results for us in a loss of friendship. We lose friends when when we're involved in this kind of wrong speech. And the last kind is frivolous talk or useless talk. And it's, it's interesting just to watch during the day how much of what we say is useless. A lot. <laughs> and just to be aware enough and mindful enough to see these impulses to speak arise in the mind and have enough mindfulness and enough attention to just let those thoughts come and go. We don't actually have to say everything that comes in our mind. And it's very quieting. It's much more peaceful when our words actually are useful, when they have value. So the three unwholesome actions of body, four of speech, there are three of mind. The first is covetousness, wanting things which belongs to others. It's just the opposite of a quality which we were practicing in, during the metta retreat. It's just the opposite of this quality of mudita, which means taking delight in the happiness of others. When the mind is filled with covetousness, there's no delight, there's no joy in other people's well-being. And so it's just to train ourselves to let go of that mind state. Ill will or anger is the other unwholesome action of mind. When do we have ill will or anger? When we don't get what we want. Or we do get something that we don't want. And so then the mind responds in this way. It's very important to understand that anger and ill will is an unwholesome state of mind. Now, in our psychological growth and understanding, something, something interesting has happened in the way we view anger. Because we have seen that repressing anger or suppressing anger is unhealthy, which it is, 
You know, we push it down and it just comes out someplace else. We've often gone to the other extreme. The pendulum has swung to this place of honoring anger. You know, and thinking that we have to express it and let it out. The Buddha had a quite different idea about this. He saw anger as being seeds of suffering, real seeds of pain in the mind. And it's not a question of suppressing it, which is not very helpful. It's not a question of denying it or judging it or condemning it. It's possible to open to anger so that we're aware that it's there, we're feeling it, understanding that it is unwholesome, it's unskillful, and letting go. Every moment of our experience, we're practicing something. Are we practicing mindfulness? Are we practicing awareness? Are we practicing anger? Are we practicing covetousness? Now we really have to see moment to moment what it is that's arising in the mind and what is being strengthened. If we are mindful, if we're paying attention, we can begin to make some choices. Covetousness, anger, the last of the unwholesome actions is one that runs very deep, is deeply conditioned in us. And that is the mind state or the the mental factor of wrong view. Wrong view means not understanding some of the basic laws which govern the unfolding of our lives. Just as an example, we don't consider the law of karma, which means that actions bring results. If we don't look at this, if we don't understand this, we go through our life not paying careful attention to what kinds of actions we're doing and to the fact that they have consequences, that they bring results. Each of our actions is planting a seed. What kind of fruit is going to grow from that seed? There's another kind of wrong view, which on the surface sounds somewhat philosophical, but upon reflection has tremendous import for the choices that we make in our lives. The Buddha talked of an eternalist view, that is the belief that there's some kind of immortal soul which goes on forever, unchanging. And he talked of the annihilationist view which thinks that at death it's all over, it's finished, gone. He said that both of these are extremes which are incorrect.
actually our view of the world, of how things happen, of what life and death are, our view of that has tremendous impact on how we're living our lives, on what we value. You know, if we think that everything ends at the moment of death, that's going to impact us. If we think that there's some kind of unchanging core that goes on regardless of what we do, that's going to impact us. The Buddha's idea, and one which we begin to understand for ourselves, you know, in, in the meditation, just from a very deep observation, is how things are arising because of conditions, depending on our reaction to them, we create new karma. If we react with greed, that's planting a seed of suffering. If we react with anger, it's planting a seed of suffering. If we are open with mindfulness, with non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, then we're planting seeds of peace for us. We're planting seeds of freedom. These ten unwholesome actions, they're dangerous because they cause suffering for ourselves and others. And it was for this reason that the Buddha said, avoid these actions. They're not helpful. What's our reaction to understanding that some things are dangerous? How do we relate to that? We were at a conference in... Los Angeles last October when the Dalai Lama was present and it was just at the time he received the Nobel Prize. We were going to talks of his every night. And in one of his talks he said, there are some things that it's wise to be afraid of. That is, those things which are dangerous. This fear is not the fear of aversion. It's not the fear of hatred. It's this wise fear is really the fear of discriminating wisdom. Now we go to the ocean and we see a sign, danger, undertow. How do we react to that? Do we hate the undertow? You know, or do we kind of shake with fear about the undertow? No, we just, there's a danger there. We should be aware of it and avoid the danger. This is what the Buddha says, kind of just putting up this sign. Ten unwholesome actions, danger. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) You know, take care. Take care, be awake, Be, be mindful. These are the things that cause suffering.
There are two ways of hearing about this. We can hear about this and sort of take it as a given. You know, we kind of nod our heads. That sounds okay. You know, it's probably right. And then just go on with our lives. And it doesn't really have much, much impact. Or we can see this really as a field of training. We were not just assuming that we never do any of these things and you know, go blithely on. But we really take each one of these and refine our actions, refine the way we're living in this world. Then it becomes a powerful training and a powerful vehicle for increased happiness. The Dalai Lama said, it it was during these talks, that he came from a region of Tibet where people were very short-tempered. That was kind of their their characteristic. He said that over the years, he's trained himself. You know, and he felt that he had made some progress. And that, you know, now if, if an angry thought or an ill will thought comes in the mind, it may come just for a moment, but he sees it very quickly and it diminishes. Uh, and he said that even though he considers himself a lazy practitioner, he's still seen that he's made much improvement. <laughs> it was very cute. <laughs> But what I liked about it was just the sense of seeing life as an opportunity for training, even when one is as accomplished as the Dalai Lama. So that we're really awake and we're using our lives creatively. We're not just kind of carried along on on this habit of conditioning. Avoid unskillful actions. Perform skillful ones. They're very simple, straightforward. Buddha talked about generosity. Just about practicing that. And all the very many ways we can do that. You know, with our time, with our energy. Just with our heart. Metta is really a generosity of the heart. You know, extending and generating loving thought. Morality, just undertaking the positive actions, you know, of not harming. There's another wholesome quality of mind which in our society we don't talk much about and we don't value that much. The Buddha pointed it out as being a really wholesome state. And that is the quality of respect. And what is it that that we respect? In our society, mostly what's respected is money and power and fame. You know, just pick up any magazine and who is it that's being written about? One of the great differences between 
some of the Asian cultures you know, that I spend time in and the West, go to almost any village in India and you ask you know, where the local saint is, there'll be some guru someplace you know, who's revered, who's respected. Imagine going into Northampton. <laughs> you know, where's the local saint? It's like it's not a value for us. We don't, it's not something that, that, that we hold as being, as being valuable. The Buddha talked a lot about the value of respecting people who are wise, who really have more wisdom than we do, of respecting parents, of respecting older people. You know, that just there's a whole there's a whole climate, a whole uh, attitude of mind that's so missing in this culture, and it's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful quality. And when I come into the hall, for many years I just came in and sat down, basically ignoring you know, the Buddha image there, because I was never much into devotion or you know, the outward expression. But just recently, in the last year or so, you know, I come in and I just pay respects, and what happens for me is I, I imagine actually that I'm paying respects to the Buddha himself, that the Buddha is sitting there. And there's such a wonderful feeling in the heart. You know, it's just like dropping into that space of paying respects to those worthy of respect. So just to see how we can bring this into our lives. It's respecting one another. It's a, it's a wholesome, happiness-bringing quality. Another wholesome action is the action of service. You know that to move through the world in such a way that as we relate to other beings, it's from a place or from a feeling of service, of helping. And it doesn't mean we need to be in some kind of dramatic helping profession. It just means how we relate to one another. You know, is it one of compassion, compassionate action? Hearing the Dhamma and speaking the Dhamma are wholesome actions. And the last of the wholesome actions the actual practice of meditation. The last on this list, there are many more. <laughs> the practice of meditation um, is two things. It's the development of tranquility and it's the development of insight. Tranquility comes as we concentrate the mind and insight and understanding comes as the mindfulness gets very strong. So this is what we're doing. Tranquil and alert. That's these are the things, these are the actions which bring us happiness. 
So just as the Buddha put up this signpost and said, watch out, danger, avoid these ten unwholesome things, he said, you want to be happy? Do this. Practice generosity. Practice non-harming. Practice the quality of respect. Practice service. Practice listening to the Dhamma and speaking the Dhamma. Practice meditation. These are the things that bring that bring real happiness for us. Sometimes people hear this and you know, perform good actions, avoid unwholesome ones. And I think it sounds quite dualistic. You know, and freedom somehow seems to have the flavor of non-dualism. You know, so how do we fit all that together? It was expressed very well by Sansanin, a Korean Zen master. He said, there's no right and there's no wrong. But right is right and wrong is wrong. <laughs> and that, that's it. You know. On one level, everything is equally empty. And yet within this field of emptiness, right is right and wrong is wrong. And certain conditions bring suffering and certain conditions bring happiness. And we can understand this. The last of the teachings of the Buddha, refrain from unskillful actions, perform skillful ones, purify the mind. This purification of the mind is really the teaching of liberation. It's the uprooting from our mind of ignorance. And ignorance means not knowing certain fundamental things about the nature of our experience. It means not understanding the impermanence, not understanding the changing nature. On whatever level we look, we see that things are changing. You know, we look at the macro galaxies, whatever you call clusters of galaxies. There's one quotation, I meant to bring it, but I'll try to paraphrase it. It's about a scientist, It it was from a scientist, commenting on the new discoveries about the outer planets you know, coming from the uh, space missions. And they're beginning to see activity on these outer planets that they had not seen before. And this quotation said that basically that previously we thought that not much happened you know, on these outer planets over billions of years but that now we suspect that very little remains unchanged over three billion years. (laughs) That was a good start. (laughs) Three billion years. Very little remains unchanged moment to moment. You know, and as we look, as we pay attention, we see that. One way to enhance one's perception 
of change very directly in the practice. And it's, it's something that's often forgotten. Not only do you want to be noting what it is that's arising, a thought, a sensation, a sound, half of the practice is noting what's there. The second half of the practice is observing carefully what happens to it. So if you can remember moment after moment to be seeing what's there and also knowing what happens to that object. Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Does it fade away? Does it end abruptly? Moment after moment, seeing what happens to the object, the truth of change, the truth of impermanence becomes so graphic, so immediate. I have to read one statement of the Buddha. He said, living a single day, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. That's how important and how transforming the seeing of impermanence is. Because when we see it, not just we, we know it intellectually, but when we actually are seeing it living in us, that is what deconditions, deconditions attachment and grasping. Because we're seeing that things are so momentary that there is nothing to hold on to. And it leads us into a seeing of the basic unsatisfying nature of things. Now, how, how much of our lives do we spend waiting for the next thing? You know, it's like we're just waiting for the next thing to happen and the next and the next as if one of these happenings in our life is going to actually bring us to rest. It doesn't. We just... into the grave. (laughs) Because we're looking in the wrong place. We're looking for completion in things which are changing. And what's so surprising is that it keeps taking us by surprise. (laughs) You'd think we'd know. This is another thing that we see in our practice just by becoming aware. And the last is the most subtle and the most difficult to grasp and is really at the heart of the Buddhist teaching. It's, it's the jewel of awakening. It's really what allows us to come out of the dream. And that is the understanding of selflessness that the idea of self, the idea of I, of mine, that that is a concept which we've created that is not true. We have the idea that things are happening to someone. My thought, my sensation, my body, I'm hearing, I'm angry, I'm happy. Everything comes back to the sense of I. And that's the fundamental illusion of our perception. We have been adding this concept to experience for so long and so deeply that we've taken the concept, we've given it a reality. 
And we live our lives based on this reality. And it's just a concept. It's just an idea. We're living in an appearance. We're living in an image. There's no one behind the process. You know, in every moment, there's seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching and mind objects. And they're coming and going, arising and passing. And they're not happening to someone. What we are is this changing process. I'd like to read you something. It's by Stephen Mitchell, who is a wonderful poet and translator. Uh, He did translations of the Tao Te Ching, an anthology called The Enlightened Heart, which is really a book of sacred poetry. This is a book of his own work. It's called Parables and Portraits. It's a wonderful little book. He, he, much of it is, uh, he uses the stories of Greek myths with a little Buddhist twist at the end. So they're very nice. This is about Narcissus. You know who, if you remember, he was this person who was so entranced with his own beauty that he would look, you know, see his reflection you know, in, in a pool of water and be caught you know, by, by that reflection. He couldn't, he couldn't leave it. He was so entranced. This is, this is a Buddhist narcissist. And it really has to do with understanding self and selflessness. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm, the reflection. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew, the image would disappear. That's what we're doing. Patiently enough and long enough, we look straight through to the bottom and the image disappears. Then there is just what there is in each moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.